kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. Acts chapter 10, verses 9 through 23. Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 9. The next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners, descending to him and let down to earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again a second time, What God has cleansed you must not call common. This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven again. Now, while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, Behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate, and they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, and go down, and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. Then he invited them in and lodged them. On the next day, Peter went away with them, and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. Since the first introduction of religious error into human thought in Genesis chapter 3, history has rarely found mankind without some sort of controversy regarding God and spirituality. In the primitive church, the apostles were helped by the Holy Spirit to lead the followers of Jesus into all truth, according to Jesus' promise in John 16:13. But even though this help made their teachings inerrant, infallible, and unalterably authoritative, the Helper did not guarantee that people would quickly apprehend or understand the wonderful truths he had revealed. This is a very important point when reading the book of Acts. Luke records the real history of Christ's people, and at times that history is rough and troubled. But the Spirit of God was working in them to bring about a grand conclusion— which he called that which is perfect or complete, 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 10. We must respect the process by which God determined to work this out if we are to understand it accurately. When we meet Peter in Acts chapter 10, he is at this point on the wrong side of a controversy. He is an inspired apostle, and we will see the Holy Spirit working in him to bring him to the truth, 
but at the first he is ignorant and in error on a very important matter. We might call this issue, How Will God Justify the Nations? Peter's understanding of this issue was not unique. He represented the mainstream of thought among Hebrew or Judean Jews in Jerusalem, including the other apostles and most others who had come to faith in Christ. There was evidently a party, that's certainly how the Spirit of God treats them in Scripture, who was present in the Jerusalem church that was called the Circumcision. Bible scholars also called them the Judaizers, who would in time bring a great trouble to the church because of their tenacious adherence to this position. The exact parameters of the position are a little difficult to define, mostly because we have a tendency to read modern ideas back into the text that muddy our perception of what was really going on. For example, modern readers will commonly accuse the apostles and the Jerusalem church of racism. I believe that racism is an anti-Christian evil that cannot be tolerated in the church. However, it is inappropriate and in fact anachronistic to impose racism on the primitive church because the very concept of race feeling from which racism arises did not exist in the ancient world. Racism is the product of modern ideas such as Darwinian evolution. It is based on a fanciful and flawed view of humanity. There is only one human race, and physical differences such as skin or hair color or shape of teeth, the size of facial features, or any other factor that people try to use to differentiate between human races have no real meaningfulness about a person's identity, biologically or spiritually or otherwise, unless a society uh, fabricates one for them. Our society has done so, and we have thus developed unholy prejudices based on these distinctions. That is sinful. But as bad as it is, it was not the issue for Peter. Neither was Peter's issue what we would call nationalism. It was not that Peter was simply an overzealous patriot to the Jewish state who thought that God loved him and his people more than all others. This is evident by the attitude toward proselytes, those of other nations who were circumcised and fully kept the law of Moses. In the Jerusalem church, these people were received into full communion and even made officers in the congregation from the earliest days, according to Acts 2.10 and 6.5. Peter's problem, and likewise the problem for many of his brethren, was what we might call a religio-cultural prejudice based on a misunderstanding of the role of the law of Moses and God's covenant with Israel and his plan to redeem the world. When I use the expression religio-cultural, I'm referring to the cultural practices and scruples of the Jews that grew up from their religious convictions as opposed to practices that might have been based on simply the environment in which they lived or the people groups who influenced them through the centuries. When God made his special covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai, he told them that they would be a special treasure to him above all people, for all the earth is God's, and they would be to him a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, Exodus 19.6. This identity was conditioned on the people obeying God's voice and keeping his covenant, verse 5. 
However, throughout most of their history, they did not take this seriously, and they suffered terrible consequences, finally and especially the Babylonian captivity. When they returned from Babylon, the collective conviction of the people was that the major sin they committed had been a failure to remain separate from the nations. Nehemiah and Ezra ordered them to divorce their pagan wives and forbade them from giving their daughters to the Gentiles because, as Nehemiah said in the book of Nehemiah 13.26, did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations there was no king like him who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, pagan women caused even him to sin. Post-exilic Judaism formed around this principle, that the key to justification before God was loyalty to him by maintaining separation from the nations and keeping their identity as the special children of Abraham. The literature written during the intertestamental period clearly states this view. The book of Jubilees, chapter 22, verse 16, says, And do thou, my son Jacob, remember my words and observe the commandments of Abraham thy father. Separate thyself from the nations, and eat not with them. And do not according to their works, and become not their associate, for their works are unclean, and all their ways are a pollution and an abomination and uncleanness. The Mishnah reflects this attitude by stating that even the houses or dwelling places of the Gentiles are unclean, Ohal 18.7. This way of thinking naturally led the early Jewish followers of Jesus to suppose that before one could become right with God through the Messiah, he or she must become a part of the Jewish community. Loyalty to God through Moses was the gateway to loyalty to God through Jesus. And this was first and foremost manifest in two ways, circumcision and exclusive table fellowship. By exclusive table fellowship, we remain refusing to enter a person's home or eat with someone who had not been circumcised and thus become a Jew, to use the language of Esther chapter 8, verse 17. In time, the Apostle Paul will sharply address this belief and make the case that it is completely opposed to the Christian doctrine of justification by faith. We will revisit the matter in Acts chapter 15 and elsewhere, but for now we have a better sense of what was going through Peter's mind and the minds of the others in Jerusalem that demanded this radical intercession by God to set things moving in the right direction. In our last two studies, we have continued to mention the last verse of Acts chapter 9, but we've not given careful attention to it. Acts 9.43 says that when Peter remained in Joppa for many days to help stabilize the new converts in the region, he stayed with Simon a tanner. This detail is repeated several times in the subsequent narrative, and it seems to set the stage for what happens next by implying that Peter has already grown in his understanding, perhaps more than many of his brethren in Jerusalem. We recall that it was Peter and John who came down to lay hands on the Samaritans and impart the gifts of the Spirit to them. That did not create any real controversy, at least it doesn't seem to, and that's somewhat surprising because of the attitude the Jews had towards Samaritans in the Gospels. 
But it may have been the ministry of Jesus had adequately prepared them that something like that was going to happen. Nonetheless, that experience had surely some kind of impact on Peter and might have put him in a place where the walls of his traditional prejudice were beginning to weaken, if not to crumble altogether. It was no small thing for Peter to stay in the house of a tanner. Tanners made leather from animal hide, and working with such close proximity to the carcasses of dead animals gave a high risk for ceremonial defilement. We do know uh, that Peter, regardless of why he was staying there, had made a significant move forward uh, by comparison to most of the Jews of his culture. It may indicate that his attitude was changing, or it may have been something God arranged to push him further along. In Acts 10, verses 1 through 8, Luke reports the angelic visitation to a Gentile centurion named Cornelius, who worshipped God, prayed, and did good works. The angel instructed Cornelius to send for Peter in Joppa, in order to learn the words by which he and his household might be saved. In our last study, we considered why Peter. Our conclusion is that Peter was chosen to preach to Cornelius, not for Cornelius's benefit, he could have learned the gospel and been baptized by Philip, who lived in his own city and likely had a congregation that met there already, but rather it was for Peter's benefit, and through him the saints in Jerusalem, and through them the world. I believe the events of Acts 10, 9-23 will support this conclusion. Acts chapter 10, verse 9. The next day, after the angel appeared to Cornelius, as they, the servants, and the soldier Cornelius sent to fetch Peter, went on their journey and drew near the city, Reese says that it would have been an all-night travel to reach Joppa when they did, but this was an urgent matter to them and to their master, a matter of spiritual life and death. At this time, Peter, the Bible says, went up on the housetop to pray. In the east, the houses were, and in many cases still are, built with a flat roof, surrounded by a parapet that served much like a large porch on a country home in modern times. Work, relaxation, and general private time was often tended to on the housetop. Luke says that it was about the sixth hour, that would be noon by our reckoning, and Peter became very hungry and wanted to eat. Most scholars say that customarily they should have eaten about two hours earlier, but since Luke says they were preparing or making ready, we suppose that they had been delayed for some reason, and if you've ever been in the same position, you can imagine how Peter would have felt. Times of hunger are good seasons to pray. Throughout time, intentional fasting was often conjoined to prayer because of this point. But even with the hunger not being sought after, there's something particularly powerful and meaningful about prayers offered in seasons of suffering and pain, when the real sense of how much we depend on God is accentuated to us and very present in our minds. In verses 10 and 11, Luke says, Peter fell into a trance and saw heaven opened. We've discussed the possible differences between trances, visions, apparitions, and other such things several times. The word for trance in this passage is literally an ecstasy. 
But it is noteworthy that in the primitive church, when people experienced ecstasies, they were very different from the sort claimed by other religions in the ancient and modern world. Peter did not lose control of his free will, nor of his previous sense of right and wrong, as the subsequent scenes will demonstrate. In chapter 12, Luke indicates that there's a difference between a vision and a real appearance of something. But the difference may simply be this, that in the case of a vision, the experience was only available to the person or persons to whom it was intended. Others might have been able to sense that something strange was happening, or they might have been oblivious to the whole ordeal. But for the target, there was something real enough, and it was a real communication from God, not just a hallucination or uh, some sort of a, a dream. When Luke says heaven opened, it seems that he means literally. It appeared that a door or window had opened in the sky or a rift of some sort between this world and the realm of God and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descending to him and let down to earth. Luke, presumably from Peter's own testimony, called it an object like a great sheet. And if he could not think of a better description, then I certainly could not. When Peter says that it was bound at the four corners, Reese says the language indicates it was open enough to see what was inside it, but it was being lowered down from heaven as if by ropes. Verse 12, in it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. The expression all kinds does not mean that every extant species of living creature was in the sheet, but rather it was a great variety, and Luke lists all of the major categorizations of animal life among the ancient Jews. But it appears that all of these creatures would have been the sort ceremonially unclean under the law of Moses, based on Peter's response. Thus it was no doubt very surprising and troubling to Peter when, according to verse 13, a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter was hungry. He might have been praying to God that the food would come soon, as Jesus taught us to do when we're hungry, in Matthew 6 and verse 11. And here is a great deal of food literally dropped down from heaven with the instruction that he should eat it. Verse 14, But Peter said, Not so, Lord. For I have never eaten anything common or unclean. Most commentators chide Peter for arguing with God and accuse him of still being the brash, thoughtless man he was during the days of Jesus' ministry. That might be a little too harsh in this place. Peter's response was no different from that of the prophet Ezekiel when God commanded him to bake and eat bread using human excrement as fuel for his fire. The prophet lamented in Ezekiel 4.15, Ah, Lord God, indeed, I have never defiled myself from my youth till now. I have never eaten what died of itself or was torn by beasts, nor has abominable flesh ever come into my mouth. And when Ezekiel protested, God acquiesced somewhat and allowed him to use cow dung. Remember the context for Peter. For him to do this would be to sacrifice his loyalty to God. It would be to join with the nations and lose a part of that which made him one of God's special people. Time does not allow us to discuss at length 
what the law of Moses taught and meant about clean and unclean food. I believe Paul Copan is correct, that the idea is not hygiene, but holiness. God pronounced all animals good, and there's nothing particularly unhealthy about eating some of the unclean animals as opposed to the clean ones, but by holiness, I do not mean that eating these animals was evil or immoral either. Those laws were part of a series of regulations and prohibitions designed to instill a sense of purity in the people. They had everything to do with that distinction and identity that the Jews of Peter's day valued so highly. So it must have seemed very strange to Peter when in verse 15 he received a response that was very different from that given to Ezekiel. And a voice spoke to him again the second time, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. This may have been the first, or at least the clearest and most direct announcement to the apostles, that Moses' law had been abrogated, laid aside and replaced by the work of Jesus. It is very interesting that in Mark's gospel and a certain record of a dispute between Jesus and the Pharisees over their traditions regarding cleanness and uncleanness, when Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from the outside cannot defile him, because it does not enter his heart but his stomach and is eliminated? In Mark's account, he inserts a parenthetical comment. Thus, he declared all foods clean. New American Standard Version. What's so interesting is that Mark, according to tradition, wrote his gospel as Peter's amanuenses. That is, Peter dictated his memories to Mark as the source and basis for Mark's material and interpretation of the events. So it seems very likely that at least on later reflection, Peter understood that Jesus had made all foods clean by his own teaching and his work on the cross, taking the old system out of the way. At this point, however, Peter did not apprehend the meaning quickly. Luke says in Acts 10.16, this was done three times, that is, the instruction and the protest and the warning not to call common, what God had made holy. It reminds us of Jesus' discussion with Peter on the shores of the Sea of Galilee after his resurrection and the threefold repetition that grieved Peter in John 21, 15-18. Then Luke says the object was taken up again into heaven. Verse 17, Now while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, Luke uses this word in his narrative to point out something amazing, something that indicates the providence of God was at work. The men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. At just the right moment, the party from Cornelius made it into the city, completed their inquiries to get directions to the house, had worked their way out of the city to this area by the sea and were asking to see Peter. Verse 19. While Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. The expression doubting nothing in this context is best understood as 
go without judgment and without scruple. The Spirit did not tell Peter that these three men were Gentiles, but combining the vision with this charge and the clear statement that the Spirit had sent these people to him, the stage was being set for Peter to receive the great lesson inescapably. Verse 21. Then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? I think McGarvey was overly generous to suppose that Peter had already put the pieces together in his mind, but he realizes that something extraordinary has been arranged by the Lord. Verse 22. And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. This was news to Peter, but Luke has already explained it to Theophilus and us as his modern readers. We'll have more to consider about Cornelius in our next study, but surely with this addition to the facts for Peter's consideration— He's beginning to realize that the vision on the housetop meant more than merely a lesson about food or about the law of Moses in the Messianic age, but something even more far-reaching. Verse 23, Then he invited them in and lodged them. On the next day, Peter went away with them, and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. Perhaps we see here another evidence of growth and progress on Peter's part. First, he lodges with the tanner. Then, he invites Gentiles to lodge with him. Next will be the most striking and challenging test of all. But God is at work. So Peter goes on with him, doubting nothing. May God help all of us to go on with him in the same way. Thanks again for listening. Please subscribe to keep up with our weekly releases as we continue through the scriptures together. Verse by Verse is brought to you by the 11th Street Church of Christ in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You can contact us at tulsachurchofchrist at gmail.com or visit tulsachurchofchrist.com. From all the dark places of earth's heathen races, oh, see how the thick shadows fly. The voice of salvation awakes every nation. Come over and help us, they cry. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story. God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. With praising and singing and jubilant ringing, their arms of rebellion cast down. At last every nation, the Lord of salvation, with glory their effort shall crown. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea.